I was looking through a lot of old photos of myself and my husband, and my kids, you know, just trying to relive the moments because I thought this was going to be my last day alive. Beyond Ourselves is a podcast where I, Taylor Camille, share stories by those living a life fully and beyond any stigma or perceived limitations a health condition may have on their day-to-day lives. For season one of this series, we are highlighting women of color, and more often, Black women, whose health needs are frequently looked over and stories seldom shared. Today, we are speaking with Terika Parks of Albany, Georgia. She is a mother, entrepreneur, and at 28 years old, a COVID-19 survivor. At the end of March 2020, Albany's death rate rivaled major cities like New York, hitting 32.9 deaths per 100,000 people, 67% higher than what New York was seeing at that time. With recent news from Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp calling for the state of Georgia to reopen on April 24, 2020, this conversation Terika and I shared could not be more pertinent. Here's Terika. I'm 28. I actually just turned 28 December the 11th. I live right here in a small city called Albany, Georgia, which many people didn't know much about until this pandemic outbreak. Prior to um, contracting the coronavirus, I was already suffering from asthma as well as bronchitis. So those were my only two health issues, just, you know, pretty much my breathing and with my lungs. Yeah. And So Albany, Georgia has really been kind of on the map because of this pandemic. Could you describe the community in Albany and what it's like to live there? You know, a lot of times when you mention Albany, you will have to follow it. Uh, Well, it's not too far from Atlanta. Well, it's actually three hours from Atlanta and Albany, the community here. Pretty much there is really nothing to do. I feel as if it's a, a retirement city. A lot of people tend to move away from Albany, including myself. I didn't move away, and I just moved back here last year for job opportunity. But there's really not, unless you're like in a management position or in a healthcare field or, you know, in law enforcement, there's really not many job opportunities here as well. Yeah. So what do you do for for work? Right now, I am a salaried manager for Walmart. As well as, I know I do a lot of different things. So I'm also a PRN for Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital. And I'm an entrepreneur as well. I have my own business called Blessed Touch. Wait, what's Blessed Touch about? So what I do with my Blessed Touch business, I do all things custom. So anything um, from t-shirts to mugs, tumblers, car decals, whatever you need customized, I can pretty much do it. And as well as I do natural stone jewelry and Apple Watch bands as well. Whoa, I have to check you out. (laughs) (laughs) That's so exciting. I know. Albany, a lot of things that I've read, it says, you know, yeah, it's not far from Atlanta, but it's a small town. Like everybody knows everybody in this community. <laughs> but did you have you seen the stories about what like what they think the spread might have been in Albany? Yes, I did see those stories say that it pretty much spread it at two different funerals. And that to me seems to be true. I didn't actually attend um, the funeral. I think the funeral was, was on a Saturday, but the church that held the funeral is where I attended on a Tuesday. And that's where I contracted the virus. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So thinking about that, what does the timeline kind of look like for you? So you kind of can pinpoint like that Tuesday I went to church, but mm-hmm. yeah, talk me through what the timeline of this looks like to you. 
Well, like I said, I was at the church on the 10th because I also do music as well. So I had to do a, a performance for the youth group. It was on a Tuesday, the 10th. And then I noticed that I started to feel uh, very sick on the 14th. So within four days, I knew that something had to be terribly wrong, which was pretty fast, I think. I started um, having different symptoms. So right away, I noticed that at first I thought it was just a stomach bug because I couldn't keep any of my food down. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an appetite anymore, you know, just very nauseated. But mm -hmm. like, like I said, everything happened so fast because that morning, you know, I was very nauseated, couldn't keep anything down, didn't have appetite. But then later that um, afternoon, I began to vomit. And not only was I just vomiting, but I began to vomit blood, which was very alarming to me. So I reached out to a family member of mine to tell them what was going on. And they knew that I had been to that church, uh, which is not my you know, normal church. I was a visitor there, but they knew someone that attended that church. And then they had that particular person to call me on three-way. And the member of that church encouraged me you know, to go ahead and get tested. And she informed me that some others were in that church that same night that I was there and they tested positive for it. So when I got off the phone with her, that's when I went to the ER for my symptoms and I did tell them that hey I was at the church and I feel like I may have contracted the virus. Wow so then they tested you once you went to emergency room? Yeah they tested me and then they just told me to you know self-isolate myself for 14 days and kind of wait on my test results to come back so they didn't send me home with any medication or anything just the instructions to self-isolate. And how do you do that? I mean you have how many kids and are you married and, and like how are you supposed to self-isolate? Exactly. So I have two kids, my daughter Harmony, she's eight, my son Ethan, he's four, as well as my husband. And I also have custody of my brother. So, I mean, luckily we had an extra room that I self-isolated myself in and I kind of stayed there. I kept a face mask on, you know, when I had to call for anything. And, you know, my husband, he kept everything, you know, Lysol, um, Clorox disinfectant, you know, kept everything wiped down. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm just so happy that none of them contracted anything. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> that was my, that was my, uh, that was my biggest fear. Yeah. So what did it feel like? How would you describe this disease? And then how was it described to you once they let you know that you were positive? Well, I I did have the flu before, so I can definitely compare the two. And I would definitely say this is nothing like the flu. It was way worse than the flu. The pain was very, very, very excruciating pain. But the worst part of it all was the fact that, okay, I already have asthma. Now this virus is pretty much taking over my lungs. So I could not breathe. I could not get up and walk. I would get up and walk. And then they ended up testing me when I went back to the hospital they put me on a monitor and they had me to walk around and they noticed when I just took two or three steps, my oxygen level would go from um, 99% all the way down to 60%. So that's the reason why they admitted me into the hospital. So I would say the, you know, the main thing out of all of it was not being able to just breathe. Like that was terrible. I, it almost felt like I, as if I was drowning underwater, trying to catch my breath. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. And so how did the nurses kind of like, talk you through what to expect or talk you through your symptoms? Were you able to communicate that that's what you were feeling to them? Well, I was able to communicate to them, you know, what I was feeling, what was going on. But I also feel that around the time when I contracted the virus, you know, to them, this is something new as well. And they didn't have a cure for it. So they were, were pretty much just trying to go with, you know, 
what people with the virus was telling them. They, I don't feel like they had much right. knowledge on exactly, you know, how, how can we treat this besides they gave me antibiotics as well as breathing treatments. But it, it kind of felt more like a learning moment on both sides of the, of the field. Like I'm telling you all what's wrong and you're all trying mm-hmm. to, you're taking notes of what I'm telling you and trying to use that to better not only my treatment, but treatment for others as well. Yeah. Cause you were one of the early cases. Mm-hmm, I was, yes. Wow. Wow. Oof, girl, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> yeah, at one point, I actually thought I was not going to make it out of it. Like, I was, because it was almost as if my, I could, I was fighting, but I could feel my body fighting through it. Like, even, I was I was afraid to go to sleep at night because I noticed when I did go to sleep, I could feel my chest, like, it would literally jump on its own. Like, it was trying to, I, I can't, I, I can't even explain. Like, it was trying to keep me alive. Like, it was jumping on his own like it was scary so i told my husband i like please come in here and check on me periodically and this was before i even went to the er i told him just check on me to make sure i'm still breathing oh my gosh when you were at home isolating mm-hmm. wow wow so then i mean what would you say was like your hardest moment my hardest moment of course when i was in the i was admitted into the hospital i couldn't have any visitors but i wouldn't say that that was my hardest moment because you know i could still go on and facetime and see the kids and my husband so my hardest moment would have to be the day that i that i got admitted into the hospital which was uh, on a friday and this particular day is when i just felt like i didn't have any more fight in me so i text my husband and i was like I can't fight anymore. I give up. I don't have any more fight in me. And, you know, I was looking through a lot of old photos of myself and my husband and my kids, you know, just trying to relive the moments because I thought this was going to be my last day alive. So he came in and then he took me to the ER. So when I got to the ER, I sat in the waiting room just for a little while and then they began to triage me. And so it was alarming to them because when they checked my temperature, it was 105 and my heart rate was at 155 beats per minute. And so the guy, the nurse was in shock. So he called over the walkie talkie that he had and said, we have a cold sepsis. So when he said that three other people ran out of the back, they rushed me to the back room. So I literally had four people in the room with me. One lady was putting an IV in one arm. The other lady was putting an IV in another arm. They were saying that I had got there just in time before my major organs began to shut down. So even though at that moment, it's like they were saying all of this stuff and they was doing all of this stuff, but I was so numb to what was going on because I had already experienced so much pain. I had already went through so much, you know, just trying to fight it myself. And so when they were telling me this, it's like I was processing it, but I wasn't. I I literally told the nurse, I said, do whatever you have to do. Just don't let me die. Cause she was like, okay, I'm getting ready to stick this needle in your arm is going to hurt. I said, you can stick whatever. I'm not going to feel it. I said, I'm numb to all pain at this point. I said, just do whatever you all have to do. Just please don't let me die. Those were my exact words to the nurse. So that, that I feel like was the hardest moment because I was like, they said, if I would have waited any longer, they don't feel like I would have made it, you know, which I felt like before I even went to the ER that, you know, I wasn't going to make it through the night. So they felt like if I didn't come in the ER when I did, that I probably would have went to sleep that night and not woke up the next morning. Yeah. Yeah, which was, like oh I said, was very alarming, very scary. And I feel like that point was my hardest, hardest moment of all of it. And even as a mother, you kind of, I think you might have in one interview related it to like 
childbirthing and just yes the pain yes i i was literally in the middle of my bed because i had tylenol 3 for the pain so i was in the middle and i took the tylenol 3 but nothing i took was helping and i noticed they said not to take ibuprofen even though i had some i you know i didn't want to risk it so i didn't take that at all but i was literally in the middle of the bed in a fetal position because the pain it radiated from my stomach to my back and it felt like labor contractions and nothing i did would make the pain go away like i was literally just in the bed just screaming my husband came he was trying to rub my back you know just to try to comfort me but that was some excruciating pain and you know i did give birth to two kids but i didn't do a natural birth i had some you know some medication to aid in that so to me it felt like i was giving labor without any medication just pretty much going through the process oh my gosh so how how has your recovery been have you been able to hold your children again yes i actually was able to um hug my kids on the 29th to be exact so my recovery has been well the only issues that i'm dealing with now i still experience um headaches and some dizziness as well as short-term memory loss i don't know if it comes from the medication that i was on i'm not really sure hopefully that will pass away soon now i do have a cough but I, I kind of had a small cough before I even contracted the virus due to me having asthma. And, you know, around this time of year, it get worse because of the pollen. So I'm not really concerned about the cough, but just the short-term memory loss concerns me. Yeah. Do you, like, you don't remember things from the day or things that happened before? Well, it kind of varies because one day I asked my husband, I was like, did I eat today? He was like, yeah, you ate. I was like, well, what did I eat? Because I don't remember eating and I don't, I didn't remember what I had ate. Sometimes I can notice I'm on my phone about to do something. And I was like, wait a minute, what was I about to get ready to do? Like, it's kind of scary to me because I never had this issue before, you know, before contracting the virus, I never had, you know, any issues with memory loss. So I'm trying to, you know, figure out exactly where is this coming from? I did um, tell my doctor, but she didn't have an answer for me. So I'm hoping that it'll go ahead and pass away, hopefully. Cause it's, it, like I said, it's yeah. kind of scary. Like I'm, I'm only 28 years old. I can't have Alzheimer's already. <laughs> so, yes. For that. yes. Have you known anybody else who contracted the virus as well? Yes, yes, yes. So I know you remember me telling you that the lady called me from the church to tell me that I needed to go ahead and be tested. It's better to be safe than sorry. You know, she told me she was at the church as well, but she wasn't going to go that day. She was going to go the next day and be tested. So she went the next day and she was tested. She was in the hospital for, I think, about four to five days, but she didn't make it. I also had another classmate that was at my church. We graduated together. She was at the church on the same night as I was. We talked, you know, we hugged you know, cause we hadn't seen each other in a while and she was only 28 years old and she didn't make it as well. So it's, it's like, it's very scary. Like very, very scary. People that were just here and yes, then now people, they're gone. Yes. People I just had a conversation with and now they're gone. And young people too, or like, yes. you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, like I said, me and her, we're we're the same age, both of us 28 years old, and I had just seen her, and to hear the news, you know, that she passed away is very sad. Yeah, I think what's worse is that a lot of people aren't getting their time to mourn and time to say goodbye because, you you know, the restrictions on funerals and the restrictions on gathering. Exactly. That kind of breaks my heart more because it's like, 
you know, exactly. how do you come to peace about it? Exactly. And that was my biggest fear, you know, being in the hospital, admitted in the hospital. I don't have any family here. So what if I do take my last breath? You mean I'm going to take my last breath with strangers? You know, that was that that part just really does something to me that people are in the hospital, but they can't have their family there with them, you know, and a lot of them are not even making it out of the hospital and they're pretty much dying there alone. That's that's just so sad to me. They can't have a proper, you know, funeral. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Some of these like statistics I've read, especially coming out of Albany, where mm -hmm. I think a lot of coverage is focusing on big cities like New York. And it's just interesting to see that a place like Albany, three hours from Atlanta, has been so affected by this pandemic. But I just wondered, like, what are your feelings about those numbers? What are your hopes for your community when this all passes? Just anything you want to talk about on that end? Well, as far as my feelings about those numbers, it is very, very shocking and alarming because I remember when we first started to hear talk about the virus, we were told for one, and just to be honest and transparent, we were told that, well, African-American people couldn't contract it. And we were also told that we're younger people won't be able to get it as well. So I think we kind of dropped the ball because in the beginning, when we heard about it, we weren't as cautious, you know, okay, yeah, it's a virus, but it's not going to mm -hmm. touch us. You know, everybody's just going about their, their normal lives. And a lot of people still haven't really started to take it serious because it hasn't hit close to home yet. I'm kind of seeing the people that are taking it serious are the ones that have either lost a loved one to the virus or either have a loved one currently fighting for their lives right now. But it saddens me when I go on my social media and I see so many people right here in my hometown, Albany, Georgia, are still not taking it serious. I mean, we have people going on live, you know, meeting up to fight and, you know, doing all kind of crazy stuff when this is the time we definitely need, you know, to be sheltered in place you know, obey the laws and shelter in place. Mm -hmm. If you don't need to go outside, you know, stay home because it definitely is serious. I never imagined in a million years that it would happen, you know, right here in the small city of Albany. We have outnumbered even Atlanta, Georgia, and it is twice as big as Albany. I just hope that people will finally just get the memo. Hey, this virus is real. It doesn't have a race age, religion, or gender. It can happen to anyone. Albany has already been on the list for so many different things in a negative aspect with one of those things being poverty. So many people right here in the city of Albany are living in poverty. So, you know, I, I just, I, sometimes, you know, you just get tired of always seeing Albany on the news for something bad. You know, when are we going to be on the news for something good? Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that after the dust settles that, you know, you and your business will boom and I'm hoping for a lot of good, but it is troubling to see, you know, our community, especially as a black community, mm -hmm. feel like this doesn't concern them or feel like they can dodge this bullet. Mm -hmm. So a lot about this podcast is about what brings us peace and how we uplift our spirit. And I wanted to know, how did you find peace through all of this? And what did you learn about your spirit? Yes. So I've always been that person to not only self-motivate myself, but motivate others as well. Even from my hospital bed, I recorded a video just pretty much not only praying for myself to make it through, but others in the hospital as well. 
So I just learned that, and which I always tell all of my followers this, giving up was never an option. Even though I was at my moment when I felt like I wasn't going to make it, I always, always put God first in whatever I do. And that alone just bring me so much peace, even just knowing that I made it out of that. And uh, I know, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't. That brings me peace as well. I constantly try to uplift and encourage everyone else because even my business, that's what it's centered around, the betterment of people. How can I make someone else's life better? You know, what can I do to contribute to someone else's happiness? And let's just try to get through this because, you know, I, I honestly don't like watching the news because they always want to tell about the fatalities, but what about the people that are recovering? So, you know, it can be very depressing at times. So I just try to keep myself uplifted and others uplifted as well. As a survivor, what do you hope others can learn from your experience and what kind of wisdom or knowledge or positivity do you hope to depart on other people? As a survivor, I want to let people know the way that I got through this, not only through my prayers, but even though, and I have to say this, even though I was in a hospital bed, even though I was short of breath, I still didn't allow that to stop me. Every single day I would sit up in my bed and I would walk from one corner of the room to the other corner of the room. And I felt like this helped me because I didn't just allow myself to just stay, you know, just to lay there in bed. Because a lot of times I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, body in motion stays in motion. Also, when they send you home to self-quarantine, I did the steam over the stove. I would do hot showers, you know, just let the steam build up in the bathroom. That helped. And don't fear. Don't fear, just hope for the best. You know, if God brought us to it, he'll bring us through it, that this too shall pass, greater is coming. Yeah. What are some of the things people have said to you either during or after that stuck with you or touched you? So even though I couldn't talk much when I was in my hospital bed, I constantly looked at those messages of encouragement, people telling me, you know, that they're praying for me, that I'm strong, I'm a fighter, you know, just just affirmation, just reminding me of who I am, you know, that I'm going to make it out of this. And, and now I'm getting, I'm so glad you made it out of it. I knew you were, I always knew you were a fighter. And, you know, that's just so encouraging to know that I have that support. Yeah, that's sweet. What was the first thing your kids said to you when you came back or, <laughs> or did? Oh, so now, like I said, I'm all about being honest. So when I got out of the hospital and my four-year-old is so hilarious to me. So when I got out of the hospital, you know, my eight-year-old, she understands more, you know, exactly what's going on. You know, you're just getting out of the hospital. We can't hug you anymore. So my son, he was like, mama, uh-uh, you got, you got that Rona virus. Don't, don't come around me, mama. You know, he just pretty much told me straight up just like it was. But on the day that they found out, um, which I posted a video as well, they found out that I was out of quarantine and they could hug me again. They were so excited just to be able to hug me again. And, you know, like I said, we don't really value the little things as being able to hug our kids. Like I was missing that terribly, you know, just being able to kiss them goodnight, you know, tuck them in and I couldn't do any of that. So not only was I excited, but they were as well to know that we can finally hug our mom again. What a mess. But I, he kept it real. Yeah, he's like, when he first saw me come home, because even when I came home, I still had, you know, how where I had the IV in my arm and both arms in on my hand. So it was a total of three. They had to put the bandage over there, you know, the cotton. So I'm walking in the house with all three of these on me. And he ran, oh, mama, you got that. He said it just like that, the Rona virus. <laughs> 
Oh my yeah. god. So he saw that and got scared. He said, I don't want to get sick. But yeah. He knew then. Hey, you guys, as you can see, I am finally free again. I am out of quarantine. I'm actually outside in my backyard. I still have not hugged my kids yet. It has been since the 14th, but it feels like it's been forever. So I'm excited. I'm getting ready to hug my kids. <laughs> Leaving you there with the sound of her children hugging their mom for the first time in a long time. On the next episode of Beyond Ourselves, we talked to Lauren Melissa about autism. We really have so much to give, and there are so many problems in our world that neurotypical people have never been able to solve. So maybe it's time to bring in new perspective. Beyond Ourselves is an original series produced and hosted by me, Taylor Camille. A variety of the series artwork shared here and on our Instagram, at Beyond Ourselves, are created by Carmen Johns and Sierra Hood. My hope is that these listenings have left you with a warm heart and an even cooler mind. I hope you are left feeling able to seek peace in the spaces and places you may find yourself in. If you're interested in being on the pod or have any compelling leads, please shoot us an email at info at And subscribe and share if you haven't already. <laughs>